Hey, this is Travis. Welcome to Midweek. Glad to have you here. Last week, we got to watch part one of our conversation revolving around law enforcement, the black community, um, how we respond as a church, and how we should engage in correct conversation. I started out last week with a passage of scripture in 2 Timothy chapter 2. I want to read it again. 2 Timothy chapter 2, starting in verse 23, says this Have nothing to do with foolish ignorant controversies you know that they breed quarrels and so we don't want to get involved in foolish ignorant controversies but we do think it's important for us as a christian community as a church as christ followers to get involved in crucial conversation and we've heard a lot of response from uh, last week, right, through the week. We've heard a lot of responses from this podcast dealing with a black community and what they're walking through right now and, and our law enforcement and, and, and feeling supported and loved. And how can we reach out and support them more? How can we bridge the gap? And those are the, those are the words that we like to hear. How can we bridge the gap? And so today in our conversation in part two, we're gonna hear a little bit more about mental health and the state of our nation. And we're also gonna hear more about how we can support those in our church, how we can walk the line of Jesus Christ, how it can be both, how we can say things like, I support the right to protest, but I don't support rioting and looting. How we can say something like, black lives do indeed matter but I don't subscribe to a political agenda that's being pushed forth by an organization called Black Lives Matter. Listen, we're an up the middle church. We wanna strive for unity, go right up the middle and bridge the gap. So this is part two, conversation two of this two part series here at Midweek. I hope you enjoy. So that kind of brings me to a question then knowing that um, and this is and when i say mental health because people usually place a terrible negative thing on it and it that's not what it means it just means exactly what you just explained i could be having a bad day yeah. i could have experienced something really traumatic that day and now i'm going to getting another call going somewhere else and i'm getting you know this in my ear when i'm already trying to deal with what i just dealt with like 10 minutes ago mm -hmm. Um, that was traumatic. So what kind of mental health services are provided for police officers? Because they do go through a lot. My, as we were talking before we got started with all this, my husband is a former police officer um, who is also white. Um, and he's, there's some stories to tell you about that too. But um, what kind of mental health services are being provided for officers um, so that they can keep themselves in a good place mentally? So um, I was involved in a shooting in 2011. Um, before I can even return to work, I had to go see a, uh, a psychologist and be talked to about it. That's part of our process, it's in place. It's gonna happen, you don't have a choice. Whether you want to or not, if you're not ready to talk to someone, you're gonna go talk to somebody. And based on his evaluation, they'll make the decision. Um, our agency's really good about um, in some of these um, situations where maybe it's a younger child, something more traumatic, um, we're really good about this. the supervisor and other officers are good about, are you okay, you good, you need anything? We're providing free care if we need it. Um, um, we have an employee service program. It's anonymous, the agency's not gonna know about it. If I need to go talk to someone, I can go talk to somebody. It's there, it's available. And I, 
I feel our supervision and our administration with our agency is good about recognizing those tough calls. Um, not all, every officer is different. You try to read them. Um, I've seen, I don't know how many dead people at this point. I remember a specific few that stand out to me. Do I need to get help for all of them? No, that's just my, my mentality of it for me, what's best for me. There's probably a few that you should, and, and you need to be willing to. People in law enforcement are typically A-type personalities, and uh, that's a struggle. Um, we are, we, and so an A-type personality without opening up the book and reading it, we are, we're dominant, we're in control. Uh, you have to be, to stay alive, you have to be, in, you know, I have to control this situation so I can get out of it, resolve it <clears> successfully, and get out of it alive, and everyone's alive and happy. Um, that's the biggest thing in law, law enforcement, control your situation around you. So um, on the flip side of that, A-type personality is also hard to accept fault and accept help, to admit that something's wrong, I need it. Um, and that's where as in law enforcement, we need to look after each other and be able to recognize it, see the changes in people and their personalities, um, and, and working with the same guys day after day after day on the same shifts, that makes it easy. But maybe it's a different place where you move around, you're not together, and that can be really hard. So I think the topic of mental health is, and I'm learning in this conversation, it's probably a lot more relevant to this discussion than I ever imagined. Um, I think it's super important to talk about mental health in, um, in, in law enforcement because you experience things just as you're sharing with me. I never would have imagined that you've dealt with. I can't, I can't understand the weight of trying to save a life, finding out there's no chance, and then going and telling their family members, he's gone, he or she's gone, and you drive off and go about your day. I can't imagine yeah. what that feels like. From the other side of it, I think of something that you brought up um, before this in, in some of the questions we talked through, this idea of post-traumatic slave syndrome something I have never heard about in my life until you sent it over to me. Um, I'm wondering, can you, can you speak a little bit about what that is and the effect that you think it has on black Americans today? Sure. So post-traumatic slave syndrome is a mental health theory um, because it is not currently in the DSM-5, which is the Diagnostic and Statistical Manual for, that's how you diagnose mental health disorders. It's not currently included. Um, but there has been a lot of uh, push for it to be included um, for this very reason that we're experiencing right now. But what it is, is basically in a nutshell, it's looking at the, the history and the systemic racism that black people have experienced and how from the time that we were brought here to this continent that... Um, how all of those experiences have not only affected our ancestors' mental health, but how has it filtered down and how has it affected the mental health of black people in 2020? Um, and specifically when um, issues of racism um, are on the table like they are right now. Um, because a lot of what we are looking at with the different ways that this post-traumatic slave syndrome is coming out um, is years upon years upon decades upon centuries filtered down of oppressed emotions, um, 
coming out now. Um, not that to say again, because mental health, you, you're responsible for your own mental health and you need to be able to get help for that. Um, but it's a real thing, even to the point to where people mention the whole black on black crime thing. That also is a byproduct of post-traumatic slave syndrome. And what I mean by that is where in during slavery times, you had people who looked like you, and then there were people who looked like me because a lot of the slave owners did have children, so they were biracial people. Um, but they were not accepted as white people. But what they did get is better um, labor assignments. So for example, they would be able to work in the house. So say, just taking you and me, for example, because you have identified as being biracial, um, I am not. Um, and so if we had been back in 1712 or something, and slavery's going on, he may have gotten a job inside of the house where he was able to sleep inside the house instead of sleeping in the slave quarters. Um, he would have been given better clothing. He would have been given better food. Um, he would have been shown, he may have been, even been taught how to read. Whereas me, my job would have been more likely in the field doing the work. I, I would have been in sleeping in the slave quarters. Um, I would not have had nice, nicer clothes. Um, I would have gotten scraps from the table. Um, that in itself caused a divide within the black community itself that has filtered down through the centuries. If you talk to some uh, black people and you ask them about the brown bag test, they'll, they'll know pretty much for the most part what you're talking about, especially if you're talking about a, uh, to a black person that may be in their 40s, 50s, 60s, or later. And what that is, is black people would, and it might still be going on, oh God, I hope it's not, but where they used to determine which black people they were going to associate with or were, who were going to be allowed to move into their black neighborhood based on the brown bag test. And that's when they would take a brown paper bag, they would hold it up to your skin, and if you were darker than that brown paper bag, they would not associate with you. You could not join this club. You could not um, live in this neighborhood just based, or your kids couldn't play with their kids if they didn't pass the brown bag paper test. So these are the kinds of things that are uh, examples of post-traumatic slave syndrome because it's been ingrained psychologically to hate yourself based on your skin color. So this is not just a, a conversation in terms of racism about white people hating us, but it's an internal hatred sometimes that is taking place if we're gonna be completely transparent about everything. And so not only as a black person are you trying to deal with that internal um, racism that you got going on, but you're dealing with the external racism as well coming from other people and other ethnicities. So it's a twofold thing. I would imagine, I can't speak for it because I'm white, right? So I can't, I can't speak for that experience, but I can't imagine the weight of feeling like you're constantly seen as an enemy by people that don't look like you. And also you're your own enemy. That, that would be incredibly debilitating. And so you, it kind of gives me perspective on 
how a black person in America could feel today when they say, I'm not afforded the same opportunity. I don't have the same ability to rise up the ranks like you do simply because you're white. You know, I'm not, I'm not given the same opportunities. You have people on the other side, particularly white people, that will say, well, if you just do this, 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 and this, and get your degree and you'd, you'd stop doing some of the things you're doing, then you'd probably have the same opportunities. That's very, very far from the truth. And the more you talk about that, the more I realize it's not, it's not just society. It's not just the culture we live in. It's also your own personal issues you have to work through about your past that you weren't even a part of, but because you've come through generations that have dealt with that, you automatically have to deal with some of those issues. So I want to hear from you a little bit about that. I don't know if you've ever heard of post-traumatic slave syndrome. I never have. This is new to me, but can you see how that might be, that might, might have effects today? Absolutely. I, I've not done a ton of research and know a ton about it, especially to hear, you know, specific um, um, descriptions of it, so to speak. Um, I definitely can see how it would be very, very relevant um, in, in today's society. Um, you know, I do, I do my best, honestly, and it is, and it is a weight on me as well, but I do my best to try to ignore a lot of those different things because, you know, I'm not one to really dwell on excuses and dwell on problems as, as much as trying to find solutions, at least for myself. So, you know, I do everything I can to try to, even though I know that things are there, even though I, I see them, even though I witness them, even though I've been a part of these situations, um, I can admittedly say, you know, I've tried to navigate personally to try to get around them as much as I, I possibly can because um, a lot of times our culture and the black community, it can be easy to use that as an excuse and just continue to throw that out there instead of just fighting against it. And fighting against it is not simply just going out and protesting and burning and doing this and that, although in some ways that may be the route, that may be what needs to be done, but in some ways it's looking at yourself and being able to figure out different ways to navigate it in a way that um, can bring change just as much as the, the alternative. And um, again, like I'm, I'm not one to dwell on excuses and I don't think it's fair for us to just simply, and I, and I'm, I try to be careful in saying this, not saying that it's not a real thing. I'm not saying that um, it's not something to be discussed. But I don't. I hope that we're not just simply just dwelling on that as an excuse to not try to cross that bridge, or to not try to fix it in a way that um, can eventually bring inclusion and bring, um, you know, fairness through throughout everything. Mm -hmm. um, because I think in all of it, we all hold a responsibility. We all, whether we're white or black, we hold responsibility for how we got to where we are and we hold responsibility of how we're gonna get to where we're going. And we have to accept both sides of that 
to a point to where we can't use those things as excuses. We have to find alternatives because, yes, sir. Is ignorance an excuse? So for me as a, as a white guy, just as a person, okay. I've never heard what you're talking about. I've never heard that. I've never heard of holding a brown paper bag up to somebody's face, right? And saying, never heard that before. Is that an excuse for me though? Because I've never heard, heard of that. Is that is is ignorance an excuse for me, right? That's I wouldn't say it, I wouldn't say it is I wouldn't I wouldn't say it's an excuse for you to the point of we've tried to voice out a lot of things. The culture has tried to voice out a lot of things yeah. for so long to where if in some way somehow maybe you don't haven't known of the specific term to it yeah. and the specific um, situations that have happened or, yeah. or um, maybe you can get by with that to a little bit, mm -hmm. but at least you would have, have at some point listened, yeah. acted yeah. in some way to where now you can look back on it and say, yeah, that does kind of make sense yeah. to, to an extent, but also your ignorance, whether you want to use it as an excuse or not, yeah. Um, your ignorance shouldn't be something that I can attack you, that I should be attacking you on because I should also understand your side of it to an extent. Yeah. So again, like I say, like I say, we all have to take responsibility for us, how we got here, yeah. as well as the where we're going. I have to be able to have that conversation with you, yeah. maybe try to educate you or whatever, yeah. point you in the right direction yeah. and say, listen, maybe you have been, but I'm not going to judge you on it. Yeah. What I'm going to do is try to make sure that you understand moving forward and do my part in that instead of me just sitting there saying, yeah, you're just ignorant and just walk away yeah. and just live in that realm. Yeah. Like that's, that's not fair uh, to be completely honest. And I think and that's why, I think that's why dialogue is so important. You know, uh, just having a conversation, asking questions, but then having, having, uh, having the opportunity or the relationships to have somebody to call to ask. Uh, so I grew up near Amish country. Okay. And we really honest with you. There was one black dude in my high school, one, one black guy, okay? And that was my sophomore year, and he was there for a year, quite honestly. The other time I grew up, until I was 10, grew up in Maine, I never saw one black individual, and that's not a lie, right? And so for me, as I'm, when I'm young, even up until I'm 16, really don't have, you know, apart from watching, uh, you know, movies or, sporting events or going on vacation. I'm not interacting with any, wow. anybody who's not white, right. right? And so I would say my ignorance of, of what you talked about is extreme, was extremely high, but because I now intentionally am in relationships with as many walks of life as possible, I'm able to ask questions and say, tell me about that. Am I wrong on this? Give me your perspective on that. And, I, and my hope is that out of relationship, if I call you, if I call you, that I can ask a question and the response isn't one of like, let me fill you in, you idiot. You know what I mean? But it's like, well, he doesn't know and he's reaching out to ask. 
You know what I mean? Right. And that's where we meet, you know? Like, and one of the things I think, even in this conversation, and when I speak of responsibility and stuff, is admittedly, in a lot of ways, I don't understand a lot of the stories he just spoke of from the police's perspective, as far as that emotion that you go through, you're leaving that home, you're having to tell that family, and then you're moving on to a completely different situation, almost having to block out something that happened 10 minutes ago. And it's really not fair to even expect that. So like, to an extent, we have on, on, on our own been ignorant to understanding that side. And it's our responsibility to being able to hear those stories and seeing that because hopefully, if the black community is really wanting change um, and we're wanting to move forward, we have to be able to also listen to that perspective. Because if we do, then it's gonna to begin to make us believe like, man, maybe we are putting them in a whole different situation, a whole different realm that we shouldn't even be considering putting them into. So it's it's only as fair, and, it's, and this has kind of been my argument up to this point anyway, is it's only as fair for us to be able to understand other people's thoughts and not just our own as a black community and just going out here and just fighting against this stuff. Because to me, it's completely belligerent in my mind to think that we can be in a pandemic People have not worked for so long. A lot of people don't have any money, so forth, so on. And then, you know, we're, we're seeing things such as uh, the looting and burning stuff and stuff like that. And just like, on one hand, you're fighting because you want to be able to have that, but you're taking it away from the next person. And in a lot of ways, that next person is somebody that is in your community. I mean, there are black people that, there are black teenagers that may be trying to save up money for college and they work at that, you know, that auto parts store that you just burnt down. So it's just like, come on, like we have to be able to see both sides of it. You know what I mean? There's, there's, there's black families that are going out and trying to feed their kids, but now they're not able to make that money because they can't go to work tomorrow or maybe they have money and they want to go to that corner store but that corner store is burnt down so i can't even go buy milk for my babies like so it's just it's ignorant for us to even begin to do these things without being able to see everybody's perspective and us as a black community you know just to call a spade a, a spade us as a black community, we can't sit here and try to fight and say, you know, we can't just hear and say like black lives matter, although they do matter. And and we want to be able to have that inclusion, but it's not OK for us to only fight for that. We have to be able to fight for every part because we want to be the same. We want to be a part of that community that we're fighting against as well. So it's almost I hope I hope that makes sense. I feel like that came across wrong, but. I think it all in all, we have to take responsibility to being able to understand that your upbringing may not have been around much of diversity. The same no, as no, no, no. Zero. Zero. <laughs> I mean, then, unless, you, <laughs> unless you count Amish folk. I don't feel bad talking about Amish. They're not going to see this and anyway. Then the same, then the, same as, the same Zero. as the, the police community or, yeah. you know, whatever the, whatever the case may be, I think it's, it's important for us to take responsibility and, and listening and understanding that side and finding solutions and not making excuses and finding solutions. Right. And, and that's why I agree with you 100% with what you were saying. And that's why I've, I've brought 
the, the aspect of mental health because I wanted to know what his mental health is when he's dealing with the calls that he deals with going from one situation to the next, dealing with the people who are out there rioting and looting, looting and seeing what their mental health perspective is. And that's why I brought up where this is coming from yeah. so that people do understand that this is where we were, this is where we are, yeah. this is where the mindset is at to why I think it's okay, not me personally, but why I, as a person who would go out and steal and loot during this time, would, in my mind, justify being okay with doing that when it's actually not, but it's a person's state of mind yeah. based on their experiences, and that's why they, people do what they do. The same reason as to why somebody who um, goes out to work every day and, and makes the decisions that they make when they're on the job. It's, it's the state of mind is what we really need to look at because I don't know what just happened to you 10 minutes ago. I have no idea. And the same thing is a person that may be getting pulled over. I don't know what happened to them 10 minutes ago. Yeah. And so it's, it's, it is about the dialogue. It is about being able to open up and discuss and then find solutions. But we need to be more patient with each other in terms of our, our state yeah. of mind yeah. and, and our mental health. And like I said, and that's why I made the, the point very on early on in the conversation that on top of what is happening racially in our country, people were already dealing with the pandemic. People were isolated. Yeah. They were in their homes. And during that kind of a time, people start to get depressed. Yeah. People start to get antsy or squirrely, as you mentioned it before. But when you, it, those are mental health states of mind. So then when something like that happens and the, it's, it's on top of what's I've already been feeling and what I've already been going through mentally, and now I get this and I see this on TV, and if I've got this kind of a history or this kind of life experience, now I think it's okay for me to go out there and start just yeah. tearing up everything. Let me yeah. just burn it down. Well, no, because every point that you just made about now I've maybe taken opportunities away from people who had already been struggling because their stores were closed, I just made it 100 times worse. Yeah. So now we've got an even bigger problem. Yeah. And that's what I mean by people's state of mind. And if we don't deal with what is happening, if we don't deal with the underlying issues, yeah. I hate to say this, but I can pretty much call it what you want, a prediction, I don't know, but it could be a hundred times worse the next time. Yeah. That's what I'm afraid of. So and that's what you walk into. Yeah. That's what you're walking in, right? A yeah. lot of times. And, and you know, we're talking about the mental health and again for law enforcement, because that's what I can refer to. The officers down in Columbus, I, I've worked, uh, not even with Columbus, I'm just going down to help, mutual aid to help them. Yeah. I, I've worked 12 days straight. Today's my only day off. I'm going back tomorrow because of another protest. And uh, so I get one day off. Uh, literally, have, I get a little bit of time in the morning with my kids and I'm gone. Those guys down there, they're working 12 hour mandated days. Yeah. They um, um, got one day off. That was all they're getting right now and they're right back at it. I, I gain 30 pounds when I get dressed for work in gear. They're putting that same gear on plus more, plus more. You know, the extra shin guards, extra pads, the helmets, all that stuff. They're, they're putting all that on. So they're, these guys are gaining 40, 50 pounds potentially. And it's 100 degrees. And it's, and it's hot. It's hot. <sighs> and it's the same thing with dealing with your kids when you tell them to go pick up your Legos. Five minutes later, hey, I told you to go pick up your Legos. Yeah. Third time. You're screaming, I told you to go pick up your Legos. 
And the four times probably means maybe you're getting a whooping, whatever, however you handle your kids, and you're going to your room. It's kind of the same aspect. You gotta, you gotta break it down in small. You have these guys who are fatigued mentally and physically. Early on, yeah, I'm sure their, their voices were, get to the sidewalk guys, get to the sidewalk guys, go over the sidewalk guys. As that day progresses, you're gonna see, you can call it police brutality, you can label it whatever you want. You're gonna see it get escalated. It don't matter black, white, whatever. It don't matter police officer or not. That's how we all operate. After 10 times of saying something, you tend to break down and lash out. Whether it's against your wife, your kids, or a police officer against other people, you're going to break down, it's going to come out. Unfortunately, those people see that breakdown and that's it. They didn't follow that officer around for the last 10 or 12 hours. And all of a sudden they're like, he only yelled at her one time and then pepper sprayed him. Yeah. It might not be right. They have rules of engagement. Yeah. I don't know, I don't know their, all their protocols. They have rules of engagement, that how they handle things. Um, but there's fatigue there, mental and physical fatigue. And at times as law enforcement, I don't think people look for that or understand what we're going through also on this end. I can tell you right now, I have not met a law enforcement officer who has defended the, the murder of George Floyd. Not once. All these other ones over, we'll just go back five to 10 years, they've been publicized. There's, on average, I, I can't go to every single specific one in details, but there's always been some little twist that you've been able to say, well, I may have not used that tactic, I may have taken this approach, but in the end, legally he had a right to be there, do the right to do what he did, things, sometimes. There, there's not one officer who said, twisted this to say, I am not hurt it yet. And um, I can tell you right now, those guys standing there with those shields and all that gear, they're looking and saying, I agree. Yeah. I agree with you. I'm not here to fight you about this. We have a job to do. Yeah. We have a task that's given to them, but um, they're beat down and mentally they're worn out. I think it's important for us to understand that and just being devil's advocate a little bit because I can see both sides of it. The argument to a lot of that is maybe when you look at this George Floyd um, specific situation in this, in this cop and when his record is put out to the public and, is, and has been talked about of having the, what is it, 17 or 19 previous um, um, what's the word I'm looking for? Complaints. Yeah, complaints, like officer complaints. Yeah. And he's been put on leave before and they continue to allow certain people to come back to the force mm -hmm. for little stuff like that. Even um, I was reading a couple days ago of in 2018 in Columbus specifically, there was a situation of a police officer that curb stomped this, yeah. this, this gentleman on the, on the ground and he got fired. But then I want to say it was like six months later or a year later or whatever, they hired him back onto the force. And the mayor tried to justify the reasons, the reasoning of being able to bring him back on. Like, yeah, I mean, I understand that side of it as well. And I, I hope that we can be strong enough mentally to be able to understand, yeah. like, this is, you know, maybe it's an outlier, mm -hmm. so to speak, or maybe there, we really should think into the, the mentality of, the police officers and stuff and yeah. understanding that side. We too, have but. split seconds to handle ourselves. Um, and, you know, things, adrenaline dumps, they get hot. 
that specific one you're talking about, there was some shooting just before the suspect I know still had a gun on him when all that happened. The tactic was horrible. That's a horrible tactic. It was, it shouldn't, shouldn't have been used. The downfall is we're judged on our actions and we have split seconds, split seconds to decide, am I going to grab this arm and I'm going to punch here? I'm going to kick there, all kinds of things. Um, and situations and it's an unfortunate scenario where um, it's tough you're, you're tough you're trying to control your emotions you're chasing people down you're tackling people because they're running from you everything's justified in all that um, and um, we make poor decisions it's going to happen there's plenty of times you said stuff in an argument to your wife where you say it and you're like ah oh, shoot that's gone. It's out. You said it. You can't take it back. And it did not. It just fueled the fire. It's just, it's just a bigger picture here. We, you see it in sports all the time. Yeah. Think about it. Watching the NFL, here are the most elite pro, train their whole life, play their whole life, huh? split second decisions, mm -hmm. and they mess up all the time. Yeah. They jump start. It's not like they want to do that. Yeah. They have trained their mind their entire life. Yep. But, oh. And it's a foul. It's, it's, you know, whatever. It affects everybody. Affects everybody, affects everything. They step out of bounds accidentally. They do whatever. It's not that they want to commit those things at times. I think the question is maybe are there people who want to commit those things yes, right. and are taking advantages of situations, mm -hmm. right? So a guy like you, and by and large, prayerfully, most people who are entrusted with keeping us safe and watching over us, um, most prayerfully are like, Man, we got a split second. Pray for us. Yeah. Be be there for us. Understand that position. But are there? I mean, maybe maybe some of the questions like, are there are there some people who are like, no, I'm going to take advantage of that situation. Yeah. Yeah. I'm sure they exist. Yeah. Uh, and for me, around me, in my in the the where I work, no, yeah. it, it, I don't see it happening. Um, yeah. And unfortunately, and it, the bad thing about it is is these situations aren't happening in the communities that yeah. that the right. good police officers are in yeah. and it's and it sucks to say it because like i seen somebody say like like not all bad not all cops are bad yeah. it's like sure but how come we keep being put in the situations with the bad cops you know what i mean yeah. like and and it's it's so, unfortunate but in some ways it's it's in that realm i, I personally i mean i, I think it has a lot to do with just kind of what you were talking about, PT. I, it's a lack of education. Um, if you don't spend time around people who don't look like you or other cultures, um, you're not going to really know a lot about what they go through. Yeah. You're just, you're not. Um, and it was kind of like what we were talking about on Wednesday about your experiences versus my experiences. Yeah. They're different. Yeah. Um, I don't know what other people who are not from my ethnic group or my culture experience. I, I would be lying if I said, oh yeah, I know exactly what it's like to be a cop. Uh, no, I don't, never been a cop. Oh, uh, sure, I know exactly what it's like to be a man. No, I don't, I'm not a man. So I, I can't even begin to understand it, but that's where education comes in, conversations like this. But here, here's an example. Um, and growing up in school, you know, everybody has like, for example, history class. Um, for me, I, I was kind of the, the other side of that. Yeah. Um, my high school was like 99% black. Okay. My neighborhood, 99% black. Yeah. Um, 
But when I, for example, when I went to history class, I learned about American history, I learned about European history, and I learned about world history. Now I can tell you what, were, what was in those books that we read, that we studied, we took tests on. Um, and the little blurb that um, even mentioned people who looked like me was, you lived in Africa, long story short, you lived in Africa, you were brought here, you were slaves, and then there was a civil rights movement, and then here we are today. And that was basically it, and it was like maybe a chapter wow. out of the entire time that I was in school. That's what I learned. And so I, I can't expect that when I come out into the real world, and I'm in the workforce, I'm meeting friends, I'm in college, I'm for anyone who's not me to understand or know anything about me because you don't learn about me in school. Um, but I can tell you a lot about you. Um, and I, it was one of the first experiences that I had in, in college because I, I went to OU and in, the, the, in 1990 where it was not very many black people, they were there, but not very many. Um, and I used to get asked a lot of questions a lot of questions. Um, and I wasn't used to that because once again, I'm coming from a 99% African-American community, including my school, my high school. And so here I come and I'm dropped in the middle of Athens, Ohio, if anybody's ever been there. Yeah. <laughs> that in itself, I mean, I'm in Appalachia. Um, and I'm getting asked these questions by other students who come from different backgrounds, come from different countries, and they're asking me questions about my hair. And I'm thinking, why don't you know this? And then I had to, and they're asking me questions about, well, do black people do this? Well, do black people do that? How are, and I'm thinking, where are you from? That's my first, like, where are you from? Because I'm like, you've never been around black people? Well, no, I've never been around black people. Okay, so then we started having some conversations, even some of my, my really good friends to this day. Um, that's how we became friends, because it was them not knowing a whole lot about me as a person, because again, I'm not in the books. Yeah. So when we're studying these things in school, there's no real mention of me except for maybe that little blurb that I spoke about. And it's like, but wait a minute, we had a history before that. Mm -hmm. I never learned about that. That was something that I had to read on my own. Mm -hmm. I had to do the research, I had to study. And so when you start to understand these things, it's like as far as like where people's perspectives and the lenses that they're looking through at the world in, um, the experiences are different. And we do need to be able to have some sort of a platform where we can learn about each other. I think that's one of the things that in my profession, if you start to know more about the person, if they start to become more of a person to you instead of an object, or a thing, because if I don't know anything about you, you're just, eh, you're just Dylan, you know, whatever. Yeah, well, even, no even less that, he's just white man. He, he's just white man. Do you know what I mean? Dylan doesn't even have a name, you're right. Yeah. Just white guy over there. And it's like, right, <laughs> just black man, whatever. So it's like, you have no identity to me. Mm -hmm. So obviously I'm not really gonna care too much about you because I don't know you, I don't know anything about you, but it puts a, a, it personalizes who you are if I do know your name. It personalizes you and makes you more of a human to me if I do know some of your experiences. Yeah. It makes you more of a person and more of a human if I 
can see what your home life is like. If I sit down and actually have a meal with you. There's community. Yeah. Community. We don't have that. And that's where we're, we're, we're really falling short. We don't have that. And I think if we take more of an approach of being able to get to know each other, make it a point to find out about the next person. Mm -hmm. Ask the questions. Don't be mad when people ask questions. Answer the questions. Mm -hmm. I think things will start to, to, to get a little better. I think we will start to see some of the change that you were asking about. How do we do this? That's how we do it. We, we got to start looking at each other as people, number one, and not just the white guy over there or the, the black girl over there or the black guy, the cop over there. People. Mm -hmm. He has a family. People that love him. He has a family. People that love him. You have a family. People that love you. I have a family. People that love me. And the funny thing about this whole situation and what we're going through is that when you actually get down to the core of it, everybody wants the same thing. We all do. And that is we want peace, we want unity, and we want equality. That's what we want. But the problem is, is if I don't see you even as being a person, I don't try to get to know you, then, then your agenda really doesn't matter. And I think that's, that's why what you said is so good. You know, Black Lives Matter. And I, and I, I love what you said. And I don't think you're saying it from an organizational standpoint. I think you're saying it from an acknowledgement standpoint, right? Like, I, but I think sometimes as a, as a white individual, I'm not trying to speak for every white person, um, when somebody says, hey, black lives are important, black lives matter, what, what I think sometimes we say is, well, all lives matter. Mm -hmm. And that's out of ignorance and not understanding even Christ's position. Think about it. Like, do all lives matter? Yes. But Jesus had specific uh, times where he talked specifically about children. All lives matter, but Jesus had moments where he talked about children and elevated that conversation. Do all lives matter to Jesus? Of course. But there's times when he sat with a woman at a well and a woman, women mattered. Do you see what I'm saying? Do all lives matter? Yes, of course. But there was times where he talked and highlighted a Samaritan in the story. Good grief. Jesus is in, Luke, in the book of Luke referred to as the good shepherd. Why? Because he left all of them and went after that one sheep. Why? Because that one sheep mattered. And so was that one sheep more important than all the other sheep? No, but, but it's just highlighting that sometimes like we can acknowledge that we need to go here and that also these sheep are important. Black people or white people are important. But when you say black people are important and white people, you know, it doesn't have to be like either or. It can be both. And in a moment when there's hurt and pain and frustration and abuse and uh, all this stuff, it's, it's not a threat to say Black Lives Matter. Well, yeah, of course, you know what I mean? Right. And we don't have to feel like we need to retaliate by saying, well, all lives matter. Right. Yeah, but all lives don't matter until Black Lives Matter in proportion to white lives. Mm -hmm. Is that fair? Yeah. Yeah. So we've got just a couple minutes left. So I wanna, I wanna kinda jump into just a couple things real quick and we'll wrap it up. Um, I wanna ask you to do something that you weren't prepared to do, but in a minute or less, I want to ask you, as a white man, as a police officer, what would you say in a minute or less to the black community that you feel they need to hear? Um, I'd say that 
in general, you know, there, racism is everywhere. It exists in some way. Um, there's stereotypes. Um, sometimes stereotypes may be okay to, to use in things, and some, they're not okay in some ways. They may be looked at racist. In general, as law enforcement, I don't feel that racism is rampant. I feel that um, um, there's, I mean, the lack of training, lack of social diversity, um, um, lack of mental health. You know, we're worn down, the stuff you're dealing with, and uh, people tend to act inappropriately when they do that. Um, there will always be bad cops. Till the end of the day, there will always be a bad cop somewhere that's corrupt um, and things of that nature. There will always be a bad pastor somewhere. It's going to exist forever. Sin is rampant. No matter what we do to show Jesus people, sin is within all of us and we're all gonna make mistakes. Um, I can tell you, especially from the most recent incidents, that police support the black community and what happened, 100%. We think it's wrong. We, we know that there needs to be justice and, and we know that there will be justice. I don't know to what extent there will be, it will be done. And I hope, I hope when that justice comes that as law enforcement in the black community, we can work together and be happy with it. And we don't have to, this reemerge again. I can truly say that um, you have our support. We're here and, and, I, and I hope this will continue to grow and understand this open dialogue, just this little bit that we've had, there's, things I've picked up on that, oh, I did not know that. So I, I think open dialogue would be great. Good. Arguing, fighting, and screaming does not work for A-type personalities. Mm -hmm. I think quiet, calm, open dialogue will help law enforcement a lot better um, because it, that would be a trouble for us. Tina, I wanna ask you same question, but um, in a minute or less, what would you say to the white community right now? Well, um, we do understand that there are issues in your communities as well. We do know that your lives matter. Um, definitely don't want to take anything away from that um, because as I stated before, I'm a follower of Jesus Christ and I do believe that all lives matter. There, there's no question about that. Um, I would say to the white community, um, be willing. To, to have that open dialogue, be willing to um, listen to us. And, and I would even say to my, my own black community, be willing to, to listen and ask questions as well because it's a two-way street. Um, I would also say to the white community, um, learn, uh, just, just learn uh, about maybe people that you've never really learned about before because there are many different components and parts to who we are and our experiences internally have been differently, even across the board. Um, but that understand also that all black people are not against you. That's what I would like to say too, because sometimes I think maybe that might be a perception. Um, and I personally don't feel that way. Again, my, my household is comprised of all three of those things, <laughs> white, black, and cop. Um, so I would just say to the white community, just 
listen, be open, and and because I, I, I know I'm willing to do the same. Yeah, that's good. Want to ask you similar question? Yeah. What would you say to the church right now? Yeah, I would say that you know we're only as strong as we are united. You know, and that means across the board, racially and and whatnot. I think the role of the church is to stand as a beacon of the gospel. And so even when we don't have things that, that we find familiarity on, you know, the thing that we can find, uh, you know, unification on is the gospel. And it, so when we have gospel-centered conversations, we have gospel-centered relationships. And when there's gospel-centered relationships, I mean, not to be whatever, but it doesn't matter. In the context of a gospel-centered relationship, it doesn't matter what color you are. It doesn't, count. it doesn't matter if you're a man or a woman. It doesn't matter if you're old or young. We have connection on the basis of Jesus Christ. Yeah. And so we need to get outside of our walls with that message. Yeah. But I also think prayer, praying, it's, you know, one of the things I've heard here from, from you as somebody who attends our church, you know, is, man, you, you need to know just how much you are prayed for during, during the day when you're going from that death go into the barking dog, go into the next thing. We have people in place that are praying for you, shooting you texts, letting you know, hey, we're here for you. Hey, what do you need? How are you feeling? Yeah. Like, we can support, yeah. support much better. Does that yeah. make sense? Absolutely. Well, just want to wrap up here. Um, appreciate everybody joining into the conversation. I know for us, I think all of us here have probably learned a little something, seen a little bit more into this perspective of, of every person that's represented here. Um, you know, of course, we don't speak for all of the white community. Of course, you guys don't speak for all of the black community. And you don't speak for all of the, the law enforcement community. But I think conversations like this are super beneficial to move us forward. I think everybody in this room truly wants that. We, we recognize there's a problem. We recognize that we need to be part of the solution. And everybody here, as you probably picked up, is a Christian too. And we truly want to see Jesus unify people all across the globe, regardless of your skin color, regardless of your belief system, regardless of your background, regardless of your situation, you all matter. Now I want to say specifically to the black community, we're with you, we support you, we love you, your lives matter. Your lives matter. You have so much inherent worth and value because you're a child of God. That's the same for all of our law enforcement officers too. I would say the same thing about you. We wanna see everybody come together, realize there's maybe not as much divide as we think there is. There's issues we need to fix. There's some things that we didn't get to get into today that I wanted to, like um, uh, institutional racism, systemic racism, things that truly do happen to black people on a daily basis that maybe don't get enough publicity, that maybe we'll talk about on another session. Um, but I think this is a good start. Sit down with the people that you don't understand. Learn about them. Sit down with people that don't look like you. Sit down with people that grew up in Amish America that I didn't know. You know, I grew up right outside of Baltimore City, Maryland. My understanding of the white community is very different than yours. My understanding of the black community is very different than yours. And so, so much is, is different between just the two of us. And we look, quote unquote, the same, right? So. Sit down with the people, I think you said it best, let's, let's strive for community, let's strive to understand each other, regardless of our perceived differences, and find that there are some things that we can agree on, that every single one in this room matters, regardless of their past, regardless of their appearance, we all matter just the same, and we've got to come together. The church, and I would say, 
We've got to do better. We've got to stand in the gap. I love what you said. Gospel-filled relationships throw out every single form of prejudice, throw out every single form of racism, and the gospel itself condemns it all. And so we need to stand on that, and we need to use our voices. We need to speak up for the people that are hurting, those that feel like they don't have hope. That's our job. That's the church. That's what Christians do. And right now, there's a certain house that's burning, and we all need to make sure we put out that fire, for real, and build it back up. So let's be a part of the change, let's be a part of the movement. Thanks for joining in. Maybe we'll do this again in the future, but let's all be a part of the change. Well, I'm definitely interested to hear your thoughts and takeaways from part two of our conversation. You know, as a church, it's so important that regardless of the, the issue that we're walking through, right, um, in, our, in our climate, in our atmosphere, in our country, it's important that we always keep the gospel central. I like part of the conversation that was had today where we, we said, you know, like I might not have a lot in common with, with you as an individual. I might not have an, a lot in common with, with Joey as a police officer. I might not have a lot in common with, with Dylan who's from Baltimore. But the thing that draws us together is the gospel. And that's all you need because that's enough because Jesus is enough. And church, I wanna remind you of that today. Or maybe you're listening from another church, or maybe you're an unbeliever, I don't know what it is. But the fact is, wherever you are, whatever season you're in, Jesus is enough. He's enough to see us through the divide in our country. He's enough to see us through the division in political agendas. He's enough to see us through the divide even in our own marriage and families. Right now in this season, Jesus is enough. Would you keep that central? And when we do, I think that we will see unity begin to take place and healing become uh, known. Well, hey, thanks for joining us today. We'll be back to our normal uh, kind of uh, programming next week in our midweek podcast here with Pastor David. Until then, uh, I'm Travis, and thank you for joining us for Midweek.